So we left off trying to imagine a world in which David Lynch is uh, the, the one great hope of what? Understanding, enlightenment, salvation from the demons of Americana. Uh, two white guys, Adam Koontz, Jonathan Fisk. Uh, you can find us at stpaulrockford.org or FTS. Was that right? FT. <laughs> ftsfw.edu There you go that'd be the Concordia Seminary Fort Wayne Indiana but today we're going to we're going to shift topics uh not really just continue to lay groundwork but go into something that maybe seems a little out of the blue uh money and then magic you want to talk about magic too last time if i recall uh, and how that term maybe is eh, more malleable than some give it credit yeah because it's it's one of these words that is apparently banished from modern life, despite the rise in uh, girls who are extremely online calling themselves witches, and despite the rise of a lot of new age things that very much resemble magical thinking, it's one of these words that seems like it's just, it's gone, right? It's It's like burning heretics or not having indoor plumbing. It's its just things that don't happen anymore, things that aren't around anymore. And I think if you look at how other civilizations or other times within our own civilization's history talk about magic, to think of it as just kind of uh, Harry Potter type stuff is probably the wrong way to think of it because maybe a broader way to think is going to get us into the discussion of money, how money and magic are related we're not saying that literally people on Wall Street are, you know, wearing top hats and pulling rabbits out of said top hats, but they are, you, you can look up, they, they will consult things like uh, mediums, things like that to try to get ahead. Well, I don't uh, think there's on, any question that modern economics is entirely yeah. voodoo, you know, just complete <laughs> voodoo. So, so there's that too. Yeah. Uh, I want you to define the word magic though. Yeah. So because I agree with you in a sense. So the supernatural is certainly an unassumed – it's an assumed non-reality yeah. in life. So yeah. like I drove somewhere today and normally in my life I'm not too concerned about shadow spirits on the way. Right? It's just not a kind of thing I worry about. Stoplights right. are what I'm worried about. Right. Um, and so we definitely have leaned hard in that direction as a civilization perhaps yeah. mm-hmm. uh, to, to our detriment. Yeah. How does this connect, though? I mean, is magic the best word for that? And I actually think it is. Yeah. So, but I'm asking sort of the devil's advocate yeah. question. I love the word magic, but is magic the worst, best word for that? Where does that come from, and why would you use that? You know, kind of unequivocally to describe yeah. something as, as similar as cutting open a beast to shed its blood in pursuit of a spiritual something, and right. what you do with a ledger to make it look like one thing while you're doing another, and it all seems to work for a very long time and looks like math until it's not kind of thing. Right. Okay. So, I mean, we're, I, I'm not even saying that, like, you know, uh, accounting practices are out of order or something. I mean, I don't know enough about accounting to say generally accepted accounting practices are, you know, worse than they used to be or something. But when you look at the way that magic is discussed in the ancient world, they're not saying that magic is fake. That's not the polemic. They're not saying that magic is foolish. That's not the premise. They're saying that magic is an illegitimate means of control over something that you're not supposed to have control over. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it might be real, but it might not. 
but it is whether it works or not, it is an attempt to do what is unnatural and to seize control over something, let's say the future or someone else that is illegitimate. It's not given to you. It's not to go back to something that we talked about from the very beginning. It's not in your nature or its nature to have that kind of control, right? So if you think about the way magicians are portrayed as late as Shakespeare, right? Go to Prospero in The Tempest. And Prospero is not supposed to be a completely evil figure. But what is he trying to do in the case of controlling another being in Caliban or the weather in causing a shipwreck? He's taking to himself control that is unnatural. Hmm. You're not supposed to have control that much control over someone else's body or over someone else's weather. And so when you're thinking about magic, magic usually doesn't look to the uninitiated as if it's at all comprehensible. But the long tradition of its intended practice from ancient times up to today, all the way down to somebody like Aleister Crowley or Jack Parsons, California figures, especially Parsons, whom we've discussed a little bit, when you go all the way there, you're always looking at someone who is studying really hard in order to control things that he didn't previously control. So it's not really non-technical. It's highly technical. It's not really strange or wondrous to the person doing it. They've studied for a long time to be able to do it. What they're trying to do is to get control over something. And for that, there might be sacrifices required. So for Aleister Crowley's version of magic, which he spelled with a K, seems a little goofy, but that's what he did. A lot of strange sexual practices are required to do that, right? But this is one of the insights that you can get. You can get there through David Lynch or any other avenue. What you realize is that in order to produce magic, whether it's called movie magic or financial magic or whatever it's called, hmm. sacrifice and study are required to get the kind of control that you want, either over people's minds when you're making movies or maybe people's bodies if you're Aleister Crowley. Now, now you've described magic there in exclusively negative terms. Yeah. Is there any positive way to understand what you just said? Um, maybe, but what I would point out is that, and I know, I know where you want to go with this. <laughs> so get ready. What you want to do is reclaim the term. That's totally fine with me. I'm saying historically, yeah. pe people who are on their own side, unless they're consciously trying to be uh, edgy and usually destructive are not going to describe what they do as magic as magic no no but yeah. although there is it's, it's interesting that, like that's a historic thing and yet it's become yeah. such a positive idea mm -hmm. so that to say that something is magical magic yeah is is a positive description of the experience that was a magical time and to wonder then you know how often in history since it's become more of a common term for uh, just describing a good time you know do those times which we which we use it for carry spiritual connotations something like study and sacrifice uh, being involved in them but what i think is interesting about what you said there is how magic is not necessarily supernatural in any way shape or form although right. certainly can be so right. that uh, the magician we think of in American terms usually is a trickster, or mm -hmm. at least 
he doesn't look like one, but we believe he is, right? And so all the stuff right. he does that's pretty scary, we're like, well, he faked it with mirrors or whatever, right? So we call him a magician as opposed to, say, a sorcerer or even a mage, which is kind of from the same word. So mage yep. and magic, yep. mm-hmm. magic, right? right. And then right. Uh, just, just this last week in, in other stuff, uh, you know, a biblical connection came up. Simon Magus, this New Testament character, who yep. he does precisely what you want. He makes a sacrificial offering of cash, and then he attempts to gain miraculous powers from the apostles uh, without permission, right? And it really yeah. doesn't go too well from him. And yet the same word, magi, is the, these wise men of the East uh, that come in Luke's gospel to to worship Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth's uh, footstool, is his infant footstool. And yeah. there's, of course, speculation. I like the speculation. I'm kind of in on it that, that Daniel uh, was one of these of old magi, uh, uh, satrap of Babylon. And in this way, somehow is connected to all of this comes out of you can study the world to understand how it works so that control is given to you for the good of others or you can try to wrest control from the creation for yourself and in that regard daniel provides an interesting counterpoint right to to what is control and how do we have it of course this is the brief history of power so a lot there trying to put a little more kind of meat on magic etymologically like way way back that word is fascinating yeah. And it's related in both the Bible and outside the Bible in ancient times to especially the civilizations of Babylon, right, which is where which right. is where Daniel is put, and also to Egypt, which is which are magicians that Moses encounters and, and goes up against. And the two primary biblical examples of kind of the problem with the world. So, you, you know, you don't have right. to like the narrative, but like there's a bad guy, there's a good guy, right. and those two images are the bad guy. Right, right. Because these are civilizations intimately involved. Also, something to notice in uh, they have levels of control that simply are not possible under the technological circumstances. And the distinction here between magic and technology shouldn't really be made under the technological circumstances of ancient Israel or the Hittites and Anatolia, because Babylon and Egypt are agricultural civilizations in flat places control is much easier to exercise and cities can be much larger than they would be under different economic circumstances. You said something in the moment that was really interesting. The, the distinction between magic and technology should not be made. Yeah, um, right. And then, okay, so again, this is where I have to push back. So where is the first article positive in this? Uh, there, is, there is in some way a way to use the concept of technology, right? Yeah. Uh, but then yeah. again, what is technology too, right? Uh, a tool yeah. – a thing, a created thing, and an ex- what a material thing that gets transposed, reused, repurposed for some other thing. I don't know. I'm trying to get like a first level root of what that would mean. It's kind of a weird idea. Okay, so technology to go to that route, you've got a Greek something Greek at the bottom hmm. of it, hmm. and it involves something that is a kind of an art, is a techne. So hmm. that is not just the way we think of the fine arts, but it's how do I make shoes? How do Craft. I make swords? Yeah. Yeah. And so those sorts of things are kind of ineluctably human. Human beings have technology by virtue of being who we are. This is visible even from the standpoint of evolutionary sociobiology, where you say the human being is ill-equipped for survival in nature. So you in have to sense, make stuff. 
it wants us in the word the word uh, you know techne technology which we're uh, equated with magic is a word for a craftsman's getting better at what he does over a lifetime of study and sacrifice right a lifetime of work yep. and, and learning and yep. simply is what what is learning so okay. so in one sense magic's learning where, that's where I'm at in the conversation at least I think it's really interesting well uh, what what I'm saying is that what what is unique about Babylon uh, and Egypt among all ancient Near Eastern civilizations is their extent. Because of a combination of geography and economics, Hmm. you can have a large and enormous amount of land controlled by a a pretty centralized power. And when you centralize power, right? So it's not the issue is not that this guy can make a sword. It's that in a civilization like Egypt or Babylon, or this happened similarly with, I think, Chicago is to me an archetypally American city Hmm. because of geography. You can centralize so much in that place that if you have the capacity to control all of those craftsmen, all of those uh, technoi, you can make something together using them that in an isolated village, no one's going to be able to make or in a small city, no one's going to be able to make. So Egypt and Babylon combine both technology with control of technology, because I, th- I think that the distinction between magic and technology could exist. You can, I can kind of make it in my head, right? And I can make it on a certain scale. I can say, okay, the guy that's making shoes is not trying to control all of nature. But if you are the person that's in charge of that centralized you know, web of technology that's able to build the ziggurats in Babylon or the pyramids in Egypt, you are also involved in yourself an almost limitless search for more, right? (laughs) You always want to push for more. You want more control. You want more capacity. You want to find out how to do things you've never (laughs) done before. And this this is why so many civilizations tell a story similar to the story of Prometheus, who is divine. He's not a god exactly, but he is an immortal. And Prometheus, that's is the one who gives fire to man. Now he, with his brother, is one of man's creators in Greek mythology, but he's the one who gives fire to man. And so the Greeks can recognize in that story two things. One is technology can be wonderful. It's better to have fire than not to have fire for so much in human life. However, Technology can also be a kind of curse, which is why the gods justly carry out their wrath on Prometheus for doing what was forbidden. With much wisdom comes, I believe, much vexation, Vexation. I think, is is how it goes. You got it. So, yeah. So I'm still hearing in this then the the positive meaning of the word magic in 21st century parlance is the result of humans pursuing their craft – because they're pursuing their craft and that over time, again, sacrifice and study leads to something that, that we can positively say, at least in American English, is magical. And yet what you're distinguishing now is the pursuit of the highest level of craft, not so much for its own sake, really, yeah. uh, not yeah. for it to be or to be given, uh, but instead to, to, if not worship it, use it to make you the one worshipped, right? And, and at right. that point, um, yeah. now we're dealing with what I would – I'm going to lean on the word sorcery there on that one. Like, Or this would be like <laughs> okay. if you're afraid of Harry Potter magic. Then this is what you think really happens out in the world today as people are like shooting their little wands around at each other, right? Like, like 
where you have congealed the 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 resources of the universe to harm others and benefit yourself. Yeah. It doesn't really matter whether it's supernatural or otherwise, right? There's something quite diabolic about it. Well, because you're not when when you're getting a civilization as large as Egypt or Babylon or the modern United States or something, the people that are running those systems, whether they work in the Pentagon or whether they're Jeff Bezos or or whoever they are, they don't actually themselves know how to produce anything. Am I allowed to not, respond to you if you say the name Jeff Bezos, or do I just have have to have awkward silence for like a minute of TV? That's correct. And then yeah, go to commercial. Please, please, just, please just like stare at me, and then you guys are going to cut me off, and I'll never come back. Right. Um, uh, is that person doesn't actually know how to make anything, and almost nobody who is consuming the stuff that is produced by that system knows how to make anything either. I mean, you see this sort of notably in people raised in urban environments, not really understanding like where food comes from right, at all. Right, right. And why would they? Life seems more magical in that way. Like uh, it's not just Disney that makes life seem magical. It's modernity makes all the stuff that we have seem magical. Well, like, where modern cl- modern yeah. magic is just the phrase, right? Modern magic. Yeah. The, the miracle yeah. of modern magic, even, I believe, is, is a, a sloganish kind of thing from the past. Uh, th- th- this so, is what was sold to us as the progress that mankind would, what, ease into a millennial right. age. And Gen X, my, my generation, right? Uh, in theory, we should be the, on the, f- the crisp, crusp of just getting the best of this now, right? And instead, right. we're the first of the dystopians. And then the millennials <laughs> are, like, are like the let's, let's tear it down dystopians. Yeah, and the people younger than me seem to want to tear things down even faster. It's crazy. Than I do, like, so. like, like up here on yeah. on this Gen X level, we're like, it's dystopic and sucks, but I got food on the table, so I'm still mm. pretty cool with that, right? And yeah. like, I'm looking at you little post millennial dystopians who want to tear it all down. It's like you guys are gonna starve. <laughs> Y'all are gonna starve. Uh, you live in the city. Well, yeah, you don't because, know how to plant your crops. <laughs> it's not like yeah, it's not like they know how to make things or do things and. And they haven't been trained to either, right? So a civilization in which the educational system pushes you into, quote, STEM, basically in order so that you have neither the capacity to know what happened in the past or how to argue for how it's better. That would be the role of the liberal arts. Neither do you actually know how to produce anything yourself. That would be the role of vocational schooling. You know how to compute. You know how to code for specific purposes useful within the system that exists. And that stuff is there so that it can self-perpetuate as long as people are not questioning its existence. So what's wrong with the society self-perpetuating and us not questioning its existence? Uh, What's wrong with it is that something that is impervious to criticism is something that I think is necessarily brittle. Because even in cases, even in situations that people are kind of taught to think of as ultimately tyrannical, completely destructive, monolithically evil, right? So I'll just, I already slandered Jeff Bezos. So let me just say this, right? If you actually know the German language and can find the right historical sources, you realize how much debate is going on within National Socialist Germany, within the National Socialist Party, (laughs) about any number of things. And so you find out, as you find out if you know Russian, which I don't, but you go into Soviet archives or you learn about debates within 
the Soviet state about what they should do about landowning peasants in the 1920s. You find out that we actually, in many ways, have not only less debate, simply because people, I think debate requires knowledge, and most of us don't have knowledge. We have reactions and emotions, and we've been trained hmm. to be emotional hmm. and reactive. We haven't been trained to be rational. There were debates about things <laughs> that, that we're not allowed to talk about. And so with an openness that, that we're not allowed to possess. And I think that that is because our civilization, our way of ordering things is in some ways more magical than anything that's ever come uh, yeah, before. Oh yeah, we're in the matrix, man. Yeah. We're in yeah. the white noise matrix. We don't even know it. We don't things even know are, it. Our heads are things, shoved. Got a needle in the back of your head. Things are given to us, right? <sighs> they're, they're given to us. So if I just think about uh, like a, like sort of basic, like human biology facts, right? So if, if the percentage of Americans are overweight that we see or hear in this or that state or nationwide, and that's going to necessarily decrease the population's energy level and physical fitness and stuff, the idea that somehow our regime would just evaporate in some kind of revolt is actually, to my mind, much less likely than the idea that any of the number of, say, revolts against Hitler during the Third Reich would have succeeded because that population was objectively more physically fit than we are, right. as we were then too. Right. Land war just destroys us right now. We don't even have a chance. <laughs> right. We don't. Right. We don't. Right. Exactly. We're done. I mean, thank goodness the Canadians don't hate us more than they do. Right. 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 And Mexico <laughs> wants a peaceful takeover from the dark shadows. Right. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. Really. I mean, California yeah. is going to be the whole. I'm not kidding, man. I yeah. mean, I, I'm a California almost native and a Portland native. And my hope for California is that Latino mm. Latino population there is at least socially uh, not in the matrix the same way. Uh, they have their own commitment to a certain work ethic and family dynamic that has not been entirely destroyed um, the way, say, white culture is, is yeah. self-eating itself. So I think I think give it 50 years in California's New Mexico, not maybe in name, but uh, uh, I think maybe by vote uh, it's, it's doing better and different. That's just a guess. Yeah, I, I, I think that our, let's to use kind of a neoconservative word, which feels weird, but they always describe things as reg regimes. Hmm. Our regime, I think, is aware of those dynamics, which is why the thing that people are integrated into when they come to America is no longer necessarily speaking English or behaving like someone descended from British Islanders or something like that. Norms that in the past were very much there. Hmm. That you know, if you read about you know Italian Americans, they'll they'll talk about the behavioral norms are so different here in America. Makes sense, right? I think what we're integrated into now is a sort of magic consumer experience, hmm. and that has very real, in the case of obesity, biological consequences for hmm. people, individuals, and entire populations. That consumer experience, which is biological, it's to some extent ideological, although different groups, very obviously by the way they vote, buy in more or less. So like Indian Americans are much more reliably democratic in elections than Hispanic Americans. So it's going right, to vary. Right. But that, that consumer experience is, that is our normative, that is becoming American. We have to remain for the regime's sake, an enormous consumer market where things magically appear. Mm -hmm. When that stops, 
I think that's when things are not necessarily in, in danger of being rebelled against. Because like I said, I think we just on a biological level don't have the energy, but they are in danger of falling apart. Yeah, it's going to make COVID look uh, yeah. pretty, pretty tame. I think right. if this happens and, but the scary thing is that you will have people who are wise unto this. I would say generally, I expect wicked men who are wise unto this, maybe mm-hmm. already see it coming yeah. um, and will be ready with guns to control the food. And so I think you should expect uh, if this kind of thing goes down, yeah. you're gonna have you're gonna have a lot of just mass starvation for the first you know two five years. Uh, right. It's just gonna happen. And and right. I'm kind of checked in like, well, that just might be me. Um, I'm gonna see if I can figure out how to hunt and like raise some stuff and defend mm-hmm. before whatever. Who knows? Right. Whatever. And I'm not gonna I'm not a prepper, but like. I'm also going to not know how to live off my land, right? I'm going to learn how to live off my yeah. land. Yeah. I'm not going to believe that men with guns won't take my cow from me when they're hungry and overweight and starving, right? Because right. They, they, they know whatever because they never learned or planned in this way. So right. I think all that has to be pondered while admitting that there's a good chance I, you know, I, I retire with a pension in 35 years with none of this ever happening too. Like there, that is a potential future. And I, I, yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think it is entirely possible that things could go on. It's also entirely possible that they could not. That, yeah. That's the measure of the instability of our regime because when the backing for the state is a consumer experience, you have to keep things, and I think this is where money comes in so heavily, and it's why I want to do you know this and and at least one more episode on it specifically is because if the money stops flowing, right, at least through certain institutions. So you notice that like all these restaurants are closing down, gyms are closing down, churches are going to close down too if they haven't already. So much is is collapsing economically because of COVID. But the Federal Reserve did make sure that not only it and the banking system, but also the largest corporations are financially solvent. And many of them have gained in market value um, since March. And the reason for that is that those are the things that ensure a certain, not just income for investors, that's a big part of it, especially institutional investors, things like pension funds. Harvard's endowment, stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But that also, in, that ensures that on a daily basis, I can still go to Buffalo Wild Wings. I can still get my Amazon shipments. That life magically goes on for me in a certain way, even if I am wildly depressed and out of work, right. I can still enjoy Vit- Vitamin experience. D deficient, stuck in an apartment, wearing a mask in my car by myself. Right, I right, know. Exactly. And raining winter is coming. Yeah, Um the spice must flow money. <laughs> I, I, the movie, they're making a new movie and it looks good. Yeah, they are. Um, yeah. the, and with, uh, now I'm, I'm going to tangent here, but the, the guy who Hans Zimmer, I think is the soundtrack too. And he does great, great work. Um, okay. debt. Yeah. It's not so much money that has to keep moving because no one's really moving large piles of cat. I mean, there are, there are like You're guys right. with the truck, right. right. But, it's not really that much moving around comparatively. No. What no. we're moving around is is promises that we call yes. money. Uh, yeah. And this promise right. is a debt, an IOU right. of some kind. At the, right. at the very top, apparently, there's you know, a, a creature from Jekyll Island or something like that. But, um, you know, <laughs> but, but that's, I don't know if we want to start there. No. You know, I recommended to you last week. I don't know if you'll ever get to it or whatever, but there's an excellent work out there called A History of Debt or Debt of History, yeah. something like that. 
uh, that gets into how you know th- these mythologies about the old barter system uh, may not have quite been right. That the the history of monetary enslavement that that you owe me and so until you finish, um, mm-hmm. and I buy into that initially and I'm stuck. Yeah. This is a long, long system of of banks, men who, who men who own the land running the men who work the land. I, I'll throw yeah. it at that you from there. Yeah. Because what debt and a guy that's done work on the history of debt, Michael Hudson, has revealed is that any society that's functional is going to have something like what in the Bible is called a jubilee. That is that debt is forgiven. Without that, debt accumulates indefinitely, which creates long-term societal fracturing because people are going to fracture into debt holder, debtors and creditors. That could that's gonna that's gonna have different starting lines, but people are gonna end up in long-term groups that are debtors or creditors. And this explains mm-hmm. a lot more of history than generally people understand, right? So you you may or may not be aware of how many among especially the group that actually prosecuted the American Revolution pushed it to be an actual revolt rather than a series of protests lodged in parliament, and then also the group very much overlapping, that wrote the Constitution, how much of that group was incredibly highly leveraged, up to their eyeballs in debt, more Mm. colloquially, leveraged is Mm. a nice finance word to cover what's actually going on. They're incredibly highly leveraged. It's it's a magical word, I would say. It's a magical term. It's like saying arbitrage. It sounds so much better than saying insider trading. Um, Right, right. So... They're up to their eyeballs in debt. Their creditors happen to live in the country from which they happen to want to be completely legally and therefore financially free. And there happens to be a giant ocean between them. Uh, That's going to make prosecution difficult. difficult. Yeah, difficult supply chain, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, so so again, debt then being – a keynote by which you can understand much of history, you know, and we've right. talked about that, yeah. you know, qui bono, who benefits. Right. Uh, it's always about money and debt in that regard. But then how do you want to tie this to magic and, and then, well, I don't know, may, maybe this is where whaling should come into the picture too. Yeah. Or maybe gambling. You pick. Whaling or gambling. I don't know. Uh, I want to do whaling. Gambling is going to have plenty of time because Wall Street, Wall Street and Las Vegas are ultimately so much more similar than people admit. Right. Absolutely. But whaling is a wonderful example, and it's sufficiently obscure for this podcast. It's a good place to start. Uh, My my name is Ishmael. Ishmael. Go for it. That book, however, because it was written by a New Yorker and not somebody from New England, I think Hmm. doesn't pick up on the uniqueness of whaling, right? So Herman Melville's using Moby Dick, that, that story is supposed to be a great American novel. It's supposed to capture what America is all about something that it doesn't quite pick up on because the research into this happened once whaling kind of stopped being a big thing, even in New England, was how unusual of a venture whaling actually was. It cost roughly 10 times the value of an entire farm. So for, for to outfit one whaling trip, you could have bought 10 farms, 10 normal-sized wow. farms and made a living on your own without debt, free and clear. You're good to go. For 10 times the, the, an average farm, you can outfit a, a whaling venture. And it's what is going to be called when we get to the 20th century, and maybe we'll get there today, maybe we won't, what's called a long tail investment. That is, if you lay it out as a mm, graph, yeah. you're going to have a bunch of stuff 
all the way over towards the left where you list all the stuff that basically failed or brought in a tiny return, almost nothing, but probably failed. And you're, you're more in debt than you were before. But when you're in long tail investments, and that's what whaling was, you are looking for the one thing that's going to give you like a hundred fold return. And there's going to be, right. there's going to be enough win. of those over the course of a decade or two decades that you're going to be able to become fabulously wealthy. This is how Trump did Trump before he became orange yep. man yep. bad. Yep. That's yep. just it. You just keep borrowing till you yep. hit something right. And then you, and woof, I made it off, pay it yep. off, go again. Uh, you know, it's it. What it takes is some real uh, brass. Yeah. I guess would be the word. You know, you just, you just really don't care if you go bankrupt, and you're just right. gonna you know go go do right. it and then right. start over, right? And and that takes a certain kind right. of chutzpah. Yeah, you well, want you so, want to build on so that. So what what what's helpful about whaling? And I'm getting this from a British economist who I think teaches at Harvard <laughs> now, named Tom Nicholas, who wrote a history of venture capital. What he's able to identify is that the financial structure of the whaling industry, which is really big in specific towns in New England, New Bedford, Massachusetts is the biggest one, is that it will make the investors fabulously wealthy. The guys that actually work on the boats, not so much. Yeah, not so like much. There's, there was a calculation that was done by an American diplomat who was at one of the stations on the west coast of South America where whalers would stop. So these guys are out on voyages for five years, eight years sometimes before they get home. <laughs> they're going to they're gonna try to collect as much whale oil as they can in different parts, mostly of the Pacific. And he, so he had all this data and this American diplomat and he put it together and he said, look, over the course of five years, this young man who's a sailor who might die, he has, he has a, a, a much higher than non, non zero right. chance. His risk assessment is no, not so like, great. His risk assessment is not so great. chance. Every, literally everybody's going to die on the ship and the ship will sink. That's a 6% chance on any given voyage over time. Just, just for reference, uh, pure COVID deaths, your, your percentage chances of that are less than uh, 1% for everyone under 70. So don't yeah, go that, whaling. That statistic, you know, uh, please ignore that. Uh, Jeff Bezos <laughs> doesn't want you to hear that. And he's making this, this young man who's actually doing the work is making right. a, a negligible wage. He could make way more yeah, yeah. money making horseshoes back at home. I mean, this is what you would call today a living wage. I mean, as if that were a good thing. As if they were a good thing. You. It's enough to. Yeah. 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 I can, I can pay for food today and maybe yeah. next week. And I got to go out on voyage again, though, right? Like exactly. my time's limited. I got no permanent no. value. I got to put it in uh, Naveem terms. Naveem, uh, Naval, excuse me. Uh, Ravi Khan. I don't know yeah. what was his name. Yeah, there you go. Naval Ravnikat. To put it in his terminology, right? Real wealth versus yes. money. And that yep. there's a distinction between those things. I like how he talks about status too, but just for now, uh, that that real wealth is, is um, it's not debt that makes you. It's when you have when someone else has your debt, someone else mm -hmm. is in your debt. Right. That's the wealth that yep. now is going to turn yep. gears for yep. you. Yeah, you can say that well, much better than I did. I'm people sure. People so. that are getting fabulously wealthy are even rather rarely the captains who actually enjoy a fairly large percentage of all the proceeds. The people who actually get wealthy off the system of whaling are the people who, who are risking not their bodies, not their lives, not their marriages by being away for eight years. It's the people who are risking their money. It's the, it's, it right. is the venture capitalist. Right. So what's interesting is that 
early on in America, you have fairly broad land distribution and therefore an incredible amount of functional equality among the population. It's fairly homogeneous economically and in lots of other ways. New Bedford, Massachusetts, has what is much more common in our day in America, which is some people are unimaginably wealthy. And so their options for life also expand all over the place. Most people, especially the people that do the work every day, are completely beholden to them on a daily basis and will really never get anywhere in life. And even, I think, ironically, just because of the, the schedule of how whaling works, like today, work very much inhibited family formation, <laughs> which is really unusual right. in the 19th century. But it was happening in that industry because if I'm gone for eight years, yeah, you can't, you can't have kids. kids. Well, he's not yep. yours. <laughs> yep, there you um, go. Yeah. So, shoot, the 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 pun slash uh, dark humor there at the end shifted my mindset. I completely <laughs> lost what I wanted to talk about because it had to do. Oh, it had to do with today then. The average American who has the the white picket fence, a little parcel of land dream, or at least a condo, yeah. you know, with a with a, a planter yeah. box, that person is the one who is the whaler. Right. And uh, the difference, I say, I, I think, I guess, would say, is that that entertainment utopia we've been put into certainly looks even for all of its ill effects many of which i'm yeah. rejecting you know like like type 2 diabetes yeah. and stuff like that for all of that looks better than whaling yeah. to me yeah i mean i, okay. I got to say yeah right i think i think that the reason it looks better is because on a on the level of provision of food and clothing we have cracked a code in mm allowing capital to dominate pretty much every facet of life. So every facet mm. of life has become a market. Marriages are optional. Gender is optional. Gender is a market now, right? I can, I can sell you the medical means to become something else than a man or a woman, right? So everything is turned into a market. However, what that is able to do magically is to provide you with a basic sustenance that we give to large percentages of our population that really never right. in their adult lives work, but we can provide right. basic sustenance to them, something that previous civilizations really could not do. Now, let's just, let's just tangent for one minute here, because my guess is there's a good percentage of our listening audience who, who you could, by the way, you could talk back to us now, if you haven't yet, uh, com slash contact, send us what you think and what you want us to talk about. But uh, my guess is there's a good percentage of our listening audience that doesn't know that if you don't work, you can just kind of live here mm -hmm. anyway. Yeah. If you want yeah. to, that that it can be done. Right. I mean, it's like for, so. I I have like these anxieties of like working to pay bills and, yeah. and things. And truly, at this point, I think if I had to go and and work the system, I wouldn't be able to right. keep what I have. But many people could right. really, and and that's sort of a thing that I think is just assumed yeah. isn't there. So maybe just touch on yeah, that. Yeah. So a bit. I think that like, like I danced when we say it. when we say like oh um we're against socialism I I. I get that ideologically. I think as a practical matter, it's too late. We have socialism yeah. if you belong to a protected class. Some of those classes are racial. Some of those classes are based on veteran status. If you belong to a protected class and you know how to access your rights, you can live largely without working in America. 
that is partly why the West Coast has the amount of, for instance, homelessness problems that it does, because people are not stupid. I think, I think sometimes we look at issues like endemic homelessness as sort of like, as if people were like natural disasters. Oh, that's just something that happens or, or horrible crime in this neighborhood is just something that happens. I actually think human beings have more agency than that. They're pretty clever yeah. people and usually. So they know where benefits can be accessed. They know where the cops aren't going to show up and they're going to exploit those things. And there's a certain wisdom in that, however wicked it could potentially be. So when, when we're talking about socialism, we're, I, I think it's accurate to say below a certain income level, especially an official income level, a reported on your, you know, on your 1040 income level, you already have socialism. You can access it. Mm -hmm. You can have almost any benefit that you want, uh, unless maybe you live in like Mississippi, in which case the benefits aren't there. But federally, they probably are there. Above a certain reported income level, you don't have socialism. And the bank owns your house and the bank owns your car. And you're working every day. But below your level and well above your level, they don't have to work. <laughs> no. You know? No. They drive around a lot and smoke right. cigarettes a lot yeah. from what I've so, seen. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know. I don't want. I don't want to knock everybody, and and yet it's like people are going to be. They're going to figure out the best way to do what appears to be the best thing yeah, to them, right. and that's what you were getting at earlier. They're resourceful in getting yeah. what they want, and so if they don't, if it's too much work for me to work to be in debt to have what I might never get, and I can get most right. of it now. Why? Yeah. Why? Why? Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. Why? Yeah, I don't. I don't find it to be like unwise. It could be dishonest, and according to your moral code, it could simply be wrong. But I don't. I don't find it to be unwise. <laughs> yeah, I just have a lot of trouble, even according to my moral code, finding it wrong to declare that. I mean, it's a little bit of the Robin Hood thing, right? You know, at what point is Robin Hood breaking the law, and so at what point is Robin Hood, in fact? enforcing yeah. the higher law. <laughs> and I'm I'm not going to make yeah. that judgment on, you know, random people in Rockford who evidently Rockford's a place where there's a lot of advantage taken. There there is certainly uh problems that socialism has created. You want to mm. see it, I can drive you around, you need to look at the disaster that Rockford is. And and yet at the same time, I'm hardly going to blame them and the people taking yeah. advantage of it. They're just yeah. trying to get by, yeah. right? Um what I'm bothered by uh is it, well, the liars and liars that who lies and the liars who tell them, Al Franken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You too, man. You too. But for that, then, uh, we'll have to come back another time. We've got about 15 minutes here, and then I'm going to have to run for yeah, a no meeting worries. today. But we've been, we've been pushing on this idea of venture, yeah. right? The whaling yeah. direction, as opposed and, and, and the idea of investment or men with something to lose, which is wealth, versus men with the only thing to lose being their lives and the kind of the how they have to work with each other to get what they want or what they can have. And this kind of sets up the, the history of worker and master right. proletariat and bourgeois and all, all right. that kind of stuff uh, that we see in so many places. So much of it seems to be based upon the idea that a gamble is the hope, whether I'm uh, the guy who's going to get on this ship for eight years because I think it'll be better when I yeah. get off it or whether I'm the guy who's going to, you know, risk, you know, debt and debt. And wow, I might actually be out on the street without my mansion now um, because I can't imagine just something different yeah. than this. Right. Gambling is a addictive 
how do I say this? I don't want to say it like that. Instead of saying gambling, why don't we say that taking uncalculated or illogical risks seems to be a belief that is tied to magic, right? That at some yeah. point there's this divine spiritual juju you can pull into your gambling, whatever it is, right? Right. Whatever it is, whaling otherwise. Yeah. Well, uh, New York Stock Exchange otherwise. You're working with probabilities. And when you're working with probabilities, you are accepting in a, in a non-magical way that you just don't have total control over the situation. If you did, you would exercise that control. You don't. So you're accepting that risk, right? The notion of risk management now common in corporate thinking has really always been around in any kind of longstanding enterprise that anyone is engaged in, right? So something that Tom Nicholas doesn't really talk about because he talks really about America is that you get these things in ancient times. It's how the Athenians get rich. It's how the Phoenicians get rich. Uh, especially people that are connected to the sea are going to have to venture on the sea and take lots of risks. It's not the taking of risk that is necessarily magical. It's the idea that I'm going to be able to turn something that is tiny into something enormous by virtue of taking the risk. And the thing about the world that allows people to do this is that sometimes it actually happens. Right. Right. But because it actually happens, then the mythology of the upside risk becomes what most people, as I was okay. trying to say before, what most people would see as venture and th this is, or as investment. What right? is strange about America is that those kinds of long tail risks in even in New Bedford, Massachusetts, there's not that much social mobility. But certainly if you go farther back in time, you look at places for which I have very great love and very great interest, medieval Venice, ancient Athens, ancient uh, Phoenicia, ancient Tyre and Sidon. Those are places where not everybody is saying my life is all about risk and venture. The magical thing about America, and I don't mean that positively, is that everyone believes someday he could be a rich potentate, that if he just takes the right risks in his life and makes the right investments, he's going to have enough information. And it's amazing how even in America, Tom Nicholas says, look, the capacity to take risks that are not going to just destroy you presumes that you have enough wealth not to be destroyed by hmm. the risks you're taking, right? right a good right, right. gambler, and I, I've really gained a, a sort of a whole different perspective on gambling from studying the history of risk, and we'll have to save that for next time. But a good gambler yeah. is somebody who isn't venturing his livelihood inside the casino. He might be venturing everything he's brought there that night or everything he's won over the past several nights, but he's not venturing the fact that he has food and clothing inside the casino. America is set up as a kind of enormous casino in which uh, a lot of people's greatest hope is just to be the guy that you know wears the vest and runs the table, right? He just wants to be a <laughs> salaried worker. The people that have a little bit of ambition, a little bit of get-go, think that having been born inside the casino and knowing nothing else beside the casino, they will somehow succeed even though they're not related to the guy that owns the casino. And one of the things... Well, but their great hope then is that they'll be able to sit and pull that slot, yep, right? Yep. That that's good for me and that's my... That, that wow. the house doesn't win. And one of the things that Nicholas says is, look, like 
the guys that were winning in New Bedford, Massachusetts, were basically all related to each other, literally. They were pretty much all Quakers, <laughs> our old friends, but here not very idealistic, just happening to be Quakers. And so they could trust each other. Are you saying there's such a thing as cultural Quakerism? <laughs> oh, there's totally such a thing. You, do you have you have Christmas and Easter worshippers only in, in Quakerism? Uh, you have a, you have uh, they don't bother to go to meeting anymore, but they still drive Volvos and yeah. read the New York Times Quakers. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. Do they have like dietary restrictions, like kosher kind of things? Uh no, that would be that would be very narrow minded. Yeah, yeah, they're cheating. And, and they're, they're cheating. They don't even have a good liberal liberal <laughs> fall apart. They need more things to like cling well, to. Well, quick. Right? The inner Quakers lights are kinda, a really good study in how people that tell you you're going to be free are usually themselves the most uptight, neurotic people you could ever <laughs> imagine. And But because they're uptight and neurotic, they can trust each other, and so they can get rich together. And that's, in fact, what happens. Well, speaking of being uptight and neurotic, why do people not like what most resembles us about ourselves? <laughs> because there is something extremely painful about observing your faults in other people, because when you see them, if you have any degree of psychological awareness, you know that those are your faults too. So one of yeah. the reasons that I talk so much about America is because I don't know anything. I mean, I have no other place I can go to. I mean, I don't even have like a Greek grandparent through whom I could obtain an EU passport someday. Um, <laughs> I got nothing else going on. And so because of that, I think America and her warts are endlessly fascinating to me. You're stuck here. Yeah, because I'm stuck here. I read a book uh, recommended by Tim Ferriss about two years ago. I didn't finish it because it wasn't very entertaining, but it was supposed to be. It was about trying to get out of the country, trying to get out of America as an American citizen mm -hmm. since we – like without just going on your visa because mm -hmm. we basically can't. Right. Um, nobody wants us, and it's just kind of a dirty <laughs> little secret. You you cannot emigrate. You can try to become a yeah. citizen in a lot of other places. It's very, very difficult to do so. Yeah. He was trying to like potentially end his citizenship, and then he goes through – the book goes through how he had to illegally do stuff, and, also, and I guess – I guess that's why it's interesting. I, I quit about that point when I got scared. It's like, wait a minute, we can't leave. I should pay more attention to what's going on here than reading books about leaving, right? Because, <laughs> because we can't. Um, so I'm right, I'm right there with yeah. you. How then does I – mean, I don't know. Is, is the insight going to be helpful to us then? So, so what we're going to – what we – when you watch TV and you see stuff that's being reported and you go, I yeah. hate this. I hate that. This there, the world, bad, right. bad, bad. There has to be some level at which we realize that the real thing you're most upset with is the way you lived your day that day. Right. Because I think that I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to give historical knowledge for its own sake. I'm giving it because historical knowledge brings you different perspective and different perspective can show you, for instance, that you've been inside a casino your whole life. That is so that you can walk out the front door, right? And it might not be easy. Uh, and you might have to quit your job because you've been living and working inside the casino your whole life. But it will mean that you're out in the fresh air, finally. So when you're looking at something, don't ask, okay, what are other horrible examples I can find, right? So, okay, I've watched one video of this horrendous street confrontation in Portland. Let me find some other, you know, raw footage from Louisville a couple of weeks ago. That's finally actually keeping you as a consumer of magic, just destructive magic instead mm. of pleasing magic. You don't want to even necessarily become a magician yourself. You just want to be free from as much control by magicians as you possibly can. 
And so go outside in the sun and become somebody who, if you needed to, could physically defend yourself. That would be something way beyond anything you're either being told to become um, and would actually benefit you and your family. Be someone that can raise crops, be someone that can hunt or can fish. Those kinds of things are not only going to be objective economic improvements in the old sense of the word, the law of the household, oikonomos, oikonomia, that's <laughs> going to help your household economy. It's also going to transform you because when you come out of the spell of magic, and there's all sorts of ancient stories about this, when you come out from under its spell, it's as if you become a different person and you truly do. Anybody that's ever lost a lot of weight or started doing something on a daily basis they actually love instead of something they hate, but they feel like they have to for the sake of the paycheck, that's going to change you as well as your life circumstances. And that's the kind of freedom that I want to give you by letting you know about all of these things that are some of them very ancient, some of them perennial, some of them fairly new that really are trying to convince you that, you know, the very best thing you can do is to, you know, smoke another cigarette and pull the slots one more time. Good. As opposed to the idea of magic, this may or may not be the best place to kind of float this idea, but I've been really pushing in my own experience to just own the word wizard <laughs> with the, the, the base word wisdom mm -hmm. being mm -hmm. there as opposed to magician mage, the base word mm -hmm. magic, you know. So, so the, I don't know that the wizard is any different than the mage other than that the wizard is more about observing the reality and knowing yeah. what it is and then not being deceived yeah. by the mage. And at times that can appear magical right. in itself. Yeah. Although it tends to appear more prophetic right. than magical, uh, if I can say it that way. And I, I'm not necessarily talking Christianity here, right? So just don't, don't assume that's in this. Certainly I would say yes to that too. But there's something more there where uh, a, wise, a wise Buddhist can call a spade a spade and say what's going to come uh, as well as others because he has insight, right? He has, he has watched long enough. Yeah, somebody that, and I, as somebody that's interested in obscure historical things and, and lots of other obscure things, I have had this experience where I say something and people are like, how do you know that? You know, so it <laughs> feels magical to other people. It's in fact not. The pursuit of wisdom is not, it takes a lot of work, study and sacrifice, like we were saying earlier. And the distinction between, that's often made in lots of different cultures between what we, what's called white magic and black magic is that the person pursuing what's called white magic is actually the intention is healing, right? Mm -hmm. You go to this person, you don't understand how these plants work, but he does or she does, and you can actually obtain healing that seems magical to you that this person actually understands. So another thing that we're looking at here is in a casino, the house always finally and cumulatively wins. But someone who actually possesses real wisdom is not trying to win but to heal. Hmm. Hmm. Sees it. Sees it as a different thing, which maybe means leaving the house. Yeah. Um, and maybe means just, again, letting the house be what it yeah. is at the same time. I mean, I, I've never done this, but it's my understanding that you can get a pretty good set of meals uh, and a nice jacuzzi and a rub down at a casino without ever having to pull slots. And, uh, you know, it's not a bad bit of day to spend with your wife, right? That kind of thing. Um, so, you know, you, it's not as though you, you can't leave America. We're stuck in the casino. You can pull your head yeah. out of the matrix. You can try to see things for what they really are. Um, that's what we're trying to help you do. One little 
what, historical blemish at a time here at A Brief History of Power with Two White Guys. Adam Kuntz, he's a doctor. He's a professor at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Again, we gave you his contact points at the start. Is there anywhere else you do stuff online regularly people can follow what you do besides this? Or want to promote something else right now? Yeah, so I, I'm on Word Fitly Spoken, fairly frequently talking a lot about kind of more churchy stuff there, especially church history. I also am... I'll, I'll post stuff on my my Facebook account so they can just look for me by name and friend me. I'd be happy to. They can follow what I'm doing there because I kind of post everything there. Right on. Cool. And you can follow me at Rev Fisk on Twitter if you care about my secular political side, <laughs> uh, which all this power stuff has quite a bit to do with. In my own mind, we'll be back next week with something new. 